Hey everyone, it's Father Sam. Before this episode of The Tangent gets started, I just want to ask you to pause what you're doing and go visit missiontothebeloved.com. Make a donation, maybe $10. Just give a quick little gift to Mission to the Beloved. That's missiontothebeloved.com. Today I'm interviewing Father Louis Morozny, who's a dear friend and a real inspiration to me as a priest. The work that he does in Haiti to take care of his people, to minister to their needs, and to just witness to the gospel is incredibly powerful. So I hope you enjoy this episode, but I'd like to ask you to be generous and help missiontothebeloved.com. God bless you. Dolph, right? Yeah. <laughs> we, we, sometimes you have to explain how it works, you know, with the countdown and everything. This is great that you already know. So Father Louis Morozny, welcome to The Tangent. Great to have you. Thank you, Father Sam. Good to be here. Uh, well, I'm I'm actually really excited because just reading this article this morning about your bishop mm-hmm. in Haiti offering himself in exchange for yes. some religious sisters who have been taken hostage. That was not at all what I was expecting to start talking with you about. I wanted to start with Mission to the Beloved, but I think that your your bishop's story right now is is super powerful. So tell me about what's yeah. going on in Haiti right now. I mean, on the one hand, of course, Haiti is my love. Uh, Such a beloved people, such a beautiful people, such a beautiful culture, vibrant, faithful, joyful in the midst of pain and suffering, and therefore the resilience that they have. And and unfortunately, I think that resilience as well can lend to, you know, we suffer so much that, oh, you know what, they can just keep suffering. Uh, right now, it's completely chaotic and violent, especially in the capital. Hmm. There's unrest. Um, and I know that word has been used a lot in Haiti, but you know, for the past couple of years, the gangs that are really heavily armed and uh, aggressive, uh, heartless, they have been operating in the capital. And there's been figures thrown out to say that Really, they're they're controlling about eighty percent of the capital, maybe even more now. Wow. And so, and there are parts of the of the country where they they occupy the main artery, the main roads leading into and out of the capital. And so, what you have is that it's a separation of the 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 capital of the country and the rest of the country. So that if you're trying to get, I have people that are stuck right now in Port-au-Prince that can't get home to my parish, or people that. I was stuck at my parish. I couldn't get to Port-au-Prince. And so we got to try to get around that either on a boat, maybe. But even then, it's dangerous because if, if you get too close to one of the gangs on the coast, they might shoot at you. Mm. Uh, so people have been trying to take you know, uh, domestic flights, uh, which have become popular in these past couple of years. They were not so popular uh, previously. But now you know they're really popular, uh, uh, taking, just to avoid those main roads where the gangs are... Uh, present and and they'll they'll do this. So this kidnapping, this is nothing new. Of course, we have had literally thousands of kidnappings. Mm-hmm. It has unfortunately become the norm, which is why I choose uh, since that thing has begun has gotten so heightened, never to go through Port-au-Prince, uh, the mm-hmm. capital. And so I'm one of those that has to plan my travels ahead of time and and uh, go in and out. Uh, on a domestic flight and and going around around Port-au-Prince in order to get to my place. 
And so that violence and the threat of kidnappings uh, for ransom, usually it's, it's for ransom. Yeah. Apparently, they those the, the gangs have asked for, you know, six million dollars uh, to release those six sisters, those poor sisters that have offered their lives to take care of the poor, take care of the the, the kids, especially in, they work especially in education. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I, I mean, it's awful. Um. Yeah. It can feel so bad that um, you understand if people feel hopeless. It's understandable. Yeah. It's an understandable feeling um, because it's all around uh, and it's in your mind every day and people have experienced it so much. Some people have never really known a true peaceful time in Haiti, the young ones. And so, yeah, it's, it's getting old and tiresome. Yeah. And that's got to be a huge challenge for anybody who's trying to do good work there. These sisters who, who give us, are they from Haiti? Um, these sisters who were kidnapped? They are from Haiti. Yes, yes, okay. they are Haitian sisters. Yeah, but okay. these are gangs, though. They are non-discriminatory. So whoever you are, they'll take you. <laughs> <laughs> Haitian, not they're Haitian. Not it doesn't matter. They're, they're, whatever, whatever. Wow. <laughs> oh, yeah, they'll take you. And it wasn't just the sisters that, that were – it was a little bus that apparently there's a, two or three other passengers or and the, okay. the driver as mm. well uh, in the bus that were taken all together. Okay. Uh, and I've got other friends that have been kidnapped. You know, they tell you the stories. I've got brother priests that have been kidnapped. Uh, they'll come back to tell us all about it. It's uh, it's it's really a mess. Yeah. Hmm. And some wow. of those gangsters, by the way, some of those soldiers, they call them, they call them soldiers because they think they're an army. It's so stupid. Um, they, yeah, they couldn't survive in a real army. They're too, yeah. they're too, they're just bums. Anyway, but uh, although there is one, one gang where the, the leader is actually a former police officer uh, and he was part of a special unit. He claims to, to have been accused wrongly and so he sort of rebelled against the system and so he's got his own gang now. He's like, I, I, I'm such a good guy, so I'm, I'm going to make a gang now to prove that I wasn't a bad guy. Okay, uh, all right. Um, anyway, but um, the I forget where I was going with this except to say that they, they, they yeah, they... Oh, yeah, there's guys. Some of them, I was going to say, they're still human beings. All of them are still yeah. human beings. But, and some of them are actually a bit more, they, they manifest that humanity a bit mm -hmm. more. Uh, whereas there are some who don't care. And, of course, they're drugged up uh, and they'll do anything. But there are others, though, who do this really just as a job to take care of their families. Um, and uh, there's, there, there's one who you know told a priest, that had been kidnapped and he was a one of the guards watching the father just so you know, I'm not going to do any harm to you. Uh, I respect you. Um, <laughs> please pray for me when you get out. <laughs> um, That's gotta know, be a weird it, experience. If you're the guy who just got oh kidnapped, my gosh. having somebody say, Hey, I, I really like you. I respect what you do. I just got to hold you captive here for a little while. You know, like, the, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I got you tied to a chair, the, but I really well, respect here. you. Let me tell you this one. This one, where this where this one priest got kidnapped, and he was driving in Port-au-Prince, and suddenly a vehicle got, you know, screeched in front of him, and like six guys came out with, you know, rifles, and told him to get out. And that's the other thing, two people are like, oh, I'm going to carry a gun. Oh, yeah, what's your little pistol going to do against six guys with rifles? Um, in fact, it might endanger you even more in the capital, that is. Uh, mm -hmm. And so, so then um, they got out, and they grabbed it, and like, get out there, get in the car, get in here. And then that guy's realized I'm a priest. They're going, oh, 
Oh, sorry, Father, we didn't realize you were a priest, but could you get in the car, please? <laughs> we're going to take you. <laughs> so when they realize it's a priest or a sister, does the tone of the kidnapping change? Like, that's when they get really, it, oh, okay. Well, for that group, because not every gang is the same. Some of the uh, gangs have different, you know, uh, different uh, relationships with with the religious, with the, the priesthood, etc. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, but that particular gang or those particular guys from that gang, there were some of those that were like, oh, you know, sorry, Father, I didn't, we didn't mean to rough you up that much. But, but you know, <laughs> but we still got to go. We still got a job to do, so get in here and, and go. And so they, they, they you know, uh, of course, they covered his eyes and they got to the mountain uh, where they took him in this isolated place. And then that's when that other God was like, you know, Father, this is who I am. You know, I'm trying to get out, actually. I, I, I want to get out. Uh, wow. I, I know if I do, they'll probably find me and kill me. Um, and so if I could find some money to get out of the country and escape, I would do it in a heartbeat. Um, and it's one of those guys uh, who, who was like that. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it is important. Um, it's easy. Even for me, when I think of those guys and see what they're doing to innocent people, oh man, you know, there's a part of me that just wants to, you know, grab them by the throat and, you know, be, uh, my, do bad things. <laughs> but then I must remember there's, they, they are still human beings, um, yeah. in, that are crying out for help, for being seen. As we, mm -hmm. we both know, they have interpersonal wishes. Um, mm -hmm. they want to be seen. They want to, to feel big so that they're not the victims. They'll victimize right. so that they don't become the victim. Um, and th they want to feel relevant. And so there's a lot going on. Uh, they are my brothers. They're my sisters, yeah. uh, who are part of these gangs. It's a, and it's a, it's a sad thing. Um, but, uh, but yeah, we, that, we, we gotta finish with it. We gotta be done with this. Yeah. It you know it's a really powerful way though that you're speaking about this that you can see their humanity you can see their dignity mm -hmm. even though the things that they're doing are so evil that you're able right. to keep that that perspective that this is this is my brother in Christ this is a person who's in need yep. and this is a person who who has real desires and to I think to recognize the humanity of somebody who's doing something so so mm. evil so wrong that in and of itself is, is a gift because it means you can fight the evil without hating the person who's, who's guilty of it. That's right. really powerful. Man. Yeah. So, well, th thank God for the Holy Spirit. <laughs> amen. I think it was last year you and your bishop were here uh, at my place for, uh, for a baptism. And yeah. I, I got, to, oh, I got to sit down I with think... you guys for dinner. Uh, and yep, just sitting and, and spending that time with him. Yeah, right? It was like a year ago. And sitting yeah. down with you guys, I, I had the chance, like, just talking with your with your bishop a little bit. I, I was just very moved by how how generous he seems, right? Oh yeah. And there's this there's the joyful spirit that he's got. <clears throat> when I read this article today, and there's a link to it in the show notes, but when I read this article about offering himself, and that you had posted this. I got excited. I'm like, I know that guy. <laughs> I've, I've met him. <laughs> and here's this, this man who's, who's willing to do something very hard. Now, I, I don't know if the, gangs, if the gangs would take him up on the offer, but either yeah. way, it's a very powerful witness. And something about that really struck me as, as just extraordinarily valuable. So yeah. for you, as, as one of his priests, what's that do for yes. you? 
I'm proud of him, first of all. I am also motivated, inspired, edified, um, because he's always been a good man, and I've always known him to be an amazing bishop, uh, just an amazing human being. That man is so beautifully human. It's amazing. And, uh, and I'm proud that's my bishop who's stepped forward and said, you know what? Enough is enough. We can't, and the rest of the note, he put out a declaration, a note um, explaining how we really cannot be going on like this. And mm. there's another beautiful part in his statement that struck me, actually. I didn't expect it, where he said, we have been praying for years for the Lord to hear us, to deliver us from this evil. Our prayers, it seemed that our prayers have not been heard. Hmm. But we continue in hope. And I thought, whoa, whoa, whoa. People don't expect a bishop to say that. People expect the, the regular person on the ground to be like, God, why aren't you listening to me? We're not listened to, he said. Yeah. And it's like the being able to subsume the language and experience of the very poor, the victims, in his own heart. And to express that, I think it's so powerful. It's almost scandalously powerful in a beautiful way. So yeah, that that's the gift that uh, that's the definition of solidarity. He's he's right there with his own people who are suffering, and he's willing to speak on on their behalf. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and yeah, and it shows that we have to do something as a church. Uh, we are probably the most organized body uh, institution in in the country of Haiti. Um, Mm. that still has some level of credibility, even though there are people who just don't understand that there's a lot of uh, anti-Catholicism going on uh, and actually anti-Christianity going on. There's, uh, there's a kind of a, a movement that is starting, and I can foresee that it, it might keep rolling. Uh, but, you know, Haiti is still considered sort of like a Christian country, even though it's a so there's separation of church and state, but it's still considered a Christian country because of the high population of Catholics and Protestants uh, alongside our, our voodoo. Yeah. Uh, practitioner brothers and sisters. Wow. So yeah, you talk about the church being one of the most stable organizations and institutions in, in the country. What yeah. is the relationship with the church and the government like? And right now, I mean, it seems like ever since the assassination of the president, the government's been in a lot of chaos. Well, yeah, the government has been in chaos for a long time, even before mm -hmm. uh, this, the assassination. Um, and the, the, the church Really, um, so on the one hand, there's the day-to-day -day things where we can't, there's no persecution of the church as we see in places like Nicaragua, for example, where there's active and open persecution of the church. We don't have that in Haiti. There's good relationship in that sense, even between the Holy See and the government of Haiti, because uh, in the you know mid-1800s, the Holy See was the first state to recognize Haitian independence and to recognize Haiti as a country, as a nation, and to have huh. uh, diplomatic relations with yeah. Haiti. And so that, 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 that's important. And they wow. signed a concordat together. Uh, and so there's sort of mm -hmm. a, uh, kind of like a treaty, an agreement, if you would, um, between the Holy See and Haiti. And so and there are certain privileges that the church can have. And also there are certain privileges that the, the government, uh, the state has. Uh, and so, for example, it's sort of an obligation for us on January 1st, May 18th, some of these big days. May 18th is our flag day. January 1st mm -hmm. is our Independence Day. It's expected that we will have a solemn mass um, in honor of the country and 
expecting that the authorities, the high authorities will be there at the mass. So if you are, for example, in the, like in my own church at the cathedral where I am, I expect that the mayor will be there. Uh, and that, you know, if there's a senator in the area that he will attend, unless he's in Port-au-Prince somewhere else, like, uh, they sort of have a right to that, if you will. And then we, we sing the hymn of the Tedeum, which is a traditional hymn that they will sing at these solemn uh, moments. Also, yeah. you know, at the, when a president is in, in, invested with his new power, uh, it's also expected that he sort of has a kind of a religious aspect to it that the Catholic Church provides. Wow. Um, can you yeah. imagine if, if we were singing the Te Deum in Congress here in the United States, <laughs> singing the Te Deum at a, at a presidential inauguration? That's incredible. I mean, what a wild idea. Wow. I know. Okay, so, so there's, a, there's a, a certain closeness, but obviously still that, that mm-hmm. separation. Um, but in a Correct. time when the government is in crisis and, and chaos, and, and therefore there's yep. this unrest, and so you have gangs taking over and everything, uh, where does yeah. the church step in? What does the church do in response to that? Okay, the church, the church will do things both in, in the background and in the foreground. In the background, the church will actually, uh, different members of the church, and will actually try to get different people to sit together and dialogue and to try to come up with solutions. Uh, and they try to be a bridge because sometimes the different parties, uh, are, you know, I don't know. Americans have no idea what I'm talking about. You know, different parties just <laughs> knocking heads together and, and they can't actually sit and talk to each other. We've, yeah. we've never heard of but that happening ha- here. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the church can be a bridge. Uh, and mm-hmm. so she tries to do that uh, and more, you know, better than people actually give it her credit for. At yeah. the same time, she will also be present um, to to try to give clarity, to kind of give a line of vision uh, publicly. And she's not afraid also at times to say, you guys need to get your act together and, and publicly decry some of those things. And my bishop in a special way. And that's why they don't understand my bishop because he tends to have some authority. He's got a voice. And, uh, and so they kind of all want to be on his good side in a sense because they know that he can advise them and he's got a way, he's, he's got a heart that is with the people. And so he has a, an, an intuition. He's very intuitive about where we should be going. And so he can advise, but at the same time, he will also be the first to denounce. Uh, mm. one, he one day blasted, uh, you know, someone who probably was a friend in a sense of his because that person tried to bribe him um, with a certain position um, uh, uh, in at the Vatican, for example, uh, at the Holy See. Like, hey, you know what? Mm. Um, if you... No, no, it wasn't at the president at the Vatican. It was a quid pro quo. If you get me, if you get me to do, uh, or if you get this kind of vote for us, um, push this, help us push this through. We'll make sure you get, you know, this kind of thing from, from the Vatican. Uh, and my bishop thought, are you out of your mind? <laughs> um, and so, or he publicly denounced, he didn't name him. He just said, this kind of thing is going on and we're not going to stand for it. We are not going to, to, to stand by and watch this corruption going on. So we gotta, we gotta make sure that this doesn't happen. And he'll also be the one to be like, Hey, and the conference of bishops as well will write different notes saying, 
things like, um, you know, if you've been in power too long, you feel corrupted, just so you know, no sacrifice is too big for the nation. The common good is what is important. They're not going to say, you need to step down right now, but they'll make it so evident that you'll be really thick not to realize what the heck they're saying. <laughs> um, yeah. But I got to say, though, in the past couple of years, there's been some, um, we've taken a big hit. Mm. Um, one of the biggest things, actually, is the there was a, a huge scandal of uh, a group that was smuggling weapons and ammunition in a container on a ship that was coming on a ship into Haiti. And, um, and then it was, this container was destined towards the, uh, the Episcopal Church uh, in Haiti. And so the Episcopal Church at first said, we have no idea what this is. We, we, we didn't, we're not expecting any containers to come. Uh, so like, that's not us. So people were like, oh, okay, cool. And then they started digging and they realized, oh, actually, you guys know exactly what this is. Um, there was apparently, at least allegedly, some of the brothers, uh, brother priests, some, well, some, of, some of the priests, some of the brothers who are Episcopal priests um, that were part of a committee, the executive committee, I guess it's called, because they don't have a bishop in Haiti right now. They, they had one. He's retired and they haven't been able to replace him. They the have one The Episcopalians. We've got 10 okay. dioceses and we've got one. So their leadership, there's a couple of the guys of the priests that were accused of being the ones behind this smuggling of weapons and not just getting the weapons in, but then they know where they take those weapons and then distribute them to gangs. Uh. Um, that was a major, that was like two years ago. That was major blow. But here's what happened though. Um, they talk about father so-and-so. They say priests are involved. Uh-huh. And the people, the great majority of the people had no idea that it wasn't right. us. Right. They, everyone assumed, oh, those Catholics, especially because our conference of bishops is called the Haitian Episcopal Conference. Like, right. So... <laughs> Yeah, so, it's, and we, we, a Protestant denomination is doing one thing, and you guys are doing a different thing. But it sounds so similar. Yeah, it sounds. But, oh, that's and they tough. don't they don't know the difference. They don't know the yeah. difference, and right, and they right. think that Catholics have priests, Protestants have pastors. So if there's a father, so and so that's involved, it's a Catholic priest. Um, yes. And so, oh, but man. that was, and I think the communication wasn't very good because the conference of bishops too. I think. Um, they could have done more to sort of be like, uh, no, that's not us. It's them. Yeah. But they also did not want to point the fingers to, um, I don't know, too explicitly because they were, were afraid of what kind of violence that would have brought against them, against the Episcopals. And mm-hmm. so they were sort of very merciful there, actually. Um, to They kind of took it. They kind of... Um, even though it, everyone knows, though people who know, they know that this is has nothing to do with the Catholic Church. And they've made the arrests uh, of some of those Episcopal priests. Um, but anyway, but but that blame, though, has gone over to the Catholic Church. But also, more than just the Catholic Church, I think it's people realizing that church people, how could church people, how could church leadership, I don't care who it is, Catholic, Episcopal, Protestant, 
Church leadership, how could you guys be involved with such a mess? And as such, we have no more trust in the church. So a lot of people are like, ah, oh, you know what, forget it. You know, that's it. That It's all over. I'm done. Mm. So because of that, you know, there's some lowered, uh, uh, I think, sense of authority on the church's part or sense of credibility. Yeah. Uh, but still, though, I think that the majority of people realize we are a hope for them. We serve as a hope. Mm. And, and so that's why we need to not be afraid. We need to get out there in the proclamation of the Lord, the gospel, but especially in doing radical acts of charity, I think. That's what's going to do it. Our words are not going to be very powerful. We need to do things to show that we are with the people and especially yeah. the poorest of the poor. Yeah, it's it's got to be mm-hmm. backed up. You're right. Yeah. Um, well, to this point then, you made a decision to go back to Haiti and to become yes. a priest there in Haiti. Um, yes. But you didn't, you were born there and then came to the U.S., um, how did that's correct how did this process happen i mean first from from leaving with your family to come to the u.s and then making the decision to return uh tell me about that piece because you've made it a radical choice to go back and to serve in a place that desperately needs you i'm honored that the lord would give me that opportunity uh to be with that beautiful people in that beautiful church with all its pain and suffering um so you're right when i was uh a a preteen i um moved to the U.S. with my mom, um, and actually, um, so, and my and my sister. We moved to Boston and mm-hmm. went to school there. I didn't know anything about the U.S. except that it was another country, and it was cool. And so, so uh, that was us. Uh, we, we, we moved and uh, went, to, went to school, started learning English, um, because I didn't know English before that. Um, and... Um, yeah, uh, I loved it. I had had a great education uh, up at Boston Latin School, um, very good school. And then I went to study at Steubenville in Ohio. Mm-hmm. During my studies, my discernment for the priesthood and studying theology, I was thinking, you know, I really would like to go back to Haiti and serve there. But um, I also just wanted to do the Lord's will. And so in discernment, I discerned different orders and uh, I was wanted to join an order uh, because I thought it was superior. I thought it was a better way of living out the priesthood. You know, you got if you're gonna be really radical, you gotta join an order. That's what I thought. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're, they're they're the real deal. You can't beat so the habits, learned, right? Right. You can't beat the habits. Absolutely, <laughs> love the habits. Um, <laughs> I, I think the Dominican habit was my favorite, just because of the black coat that they or cape, oh, yeah. I guess, whatever it is that they wear. Yeah, that, and I was like, oh, check those guys out, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I, uh, I was doing that. And then I, uh, I finally kind of concluded that I think that I was going to join the Missionaries of Charity. Um, but they were in Mexico and not in Haiti. Uh, well, the fathers were not in Haiti. The sisters and brothers are. And, but the fathers, they're headquartered in Mexico. So uh, I went to visit and I, I thought, you know, like it. And I applied uh, and I cried in applying because I realized that if I joined them, and they told me that straight up, if you join us, you might never go to Haiti. Mm. And mm. so if you're going to be a missionary with us, you need to know that you might, yeah, you might never set foot in Haiti. I thought, ooh, that hurt. That hurt real bad. That's really, really, really bad. But I felt the Lord asking me for Haiti. I, Haiti was my Isaac. 
that he, he was asking me to offer up. So mm. I did a three-day retreat before the Blessed Sacrament. I read through the whole book of Hebrew, Hebrews so that I could have a better understanding of what it is to be priestly. And, and I made the decision to apply, to say, okay, Lord, I give you my Isaac. And I cried. I, I, I cried my eyes out uh, because I, I realized that this is goodbye. Goodbye to my family. Goodbye to Haiti. So I did. But then they told me that, you know, you got to pay off your student loans first, buddy. And I thought, oh, man. So <laughs> I went back to Boston. I became a, uh, a host at a restaurant. So I could try. I wanted to do something to make some money and to quickly work off my loans so I could go join something flexible. So I became a host. Um, and then I got my license to become a cab driver in Boston. Uh, and that was fun. That was, that was mm. something else, uh, driving in Boston. Um, so <laughs> I did that. That's when I met Sean Forrest, our, uh, our mutual friend. And, yeah. uh, and we started working together to help establish the mission in Haiti, Haiti 180. And so I was doing that. <clears throat> After a couple of years of doing that, and different people telling me, who didn't know each other, telling me, you know, Louis, I don't think God is calling you to Mexico or to the missionaries of charity. I think the Lord has a mission for you here in Haiti. At first, when I heard that, I was defensive because there's a part of me that was like, no. Do you have any idea how long it took me to discern this? And I finally arrived, and now you're going to ruffle my feathers and make me start over. <laughs> no. Right, right. And you um, made that you made the offering. You made the hardest offering that yes, you could. Yes, and, yes. Exactly. So but then it kept happening. It's like mm. what the heck is going on? Random people too. So I began to think, like, what's going on, Lord? And the Lord began to turn my heart a little bit. So that's when I was like, okay, I need to figure this out. I called my spiritual director, the late Father Michael Scanlon in Steubenville. Mm-hmm. And I went back to Steubenville and I, I took another three-day retreat before the Blessed Sacrament there. And just falling on my face before the Lord saying, Lord, what do you want of me? Uh, and I think I left there with clear instructions um, that I presented to my spiritual director. And he agreed. Uh, it, the Lord said, first, fall in love with him all over again. Second, Become a priest. Third, go to Haiti. Um, but each one of those, uh, the most important, the only indispensable one is to fall in love with Jesus, he said, and then the priesthood, and then Haiti. So that's the order of importance in terms of my mission. So I tried to do that. Um, and so I tried to fall in love with the Lord. Uh, and uh, I became a priest. Um, and so I contacted the bishop of my diocese. Uh, and I contacted him because... Because uh, at first I was thinking maybe I could join a, a local order in Haiti. Because remember, the orders, they're the best, right? You can't, you know, yeah. if you want to be radical, you got to join an order. So then, but then I heard Bishop Duma preaching, this current bishop that I have now. And I thought, wow, who is this shepherd? I would like this guy to be my shepherd, my bishop. Mm. And it just so happens he was the bishop of my own diocese, my home diocese in Haiti of my, you know, where my village, where I was born in the village. I was born in a small village, a uh, beautiful little village. So I approached them to say, hey, I, um, I, I, uh, I've done this amount of studies. I think what is calling me to Haiti. Um, and so I would love to have a conversation to see what that would look like. And um, so I wrote up my life story, got my transcripts and everything and sent it all to him. And then he gave mm-hmm. me 
an interview. And I think at first she was skeptical as to why I want to come back to Haiti when a lot of people are trying to leave. And so I said, well, draws well. It's like, and I didn't have any expectations. Uh, I didn't have any demands. Just wanted to follow the Lord. If he says to go to Haiti, well, here I am. Then you're the bishop, so you figure out what the heck you want to do. Um, <laughs> if he wanted to send me to for studies for another 10 years before I became a priest, that's up to him. For me, that wasn't the problem. The problem, the, the, the thing was, the, my orders were, go. So I went. The rest is not up to me. And so he received me. And I think he kind of very quickly realized that, okay, I want to ordain this guy quickly. And then he, uh, very fast, uh, he worked together and got references. And uh, he actually went to Steubenville to visit, uh, to see sort of where I had my formation and uh, and then was uh, soon after that ordained. So I've been ordained for uh, 12 years now. Uh, it was in October. Well, I was ordained a deacon in April of 2011 and then a priest on Halloween of 2011 on October 31st. So uh, it, it'll... This this up, upcoming October, it'll be 13 years. And so I've been there since. And uh, I am currently the, the pastor for our cathedral of the diocese. Um, and so I've got a, an amazing team of lay people and brother priests uh, with us. We try to live and enjoy life um, yeah. in the midst of the suffering and pain and to lead the people uh, to help yeah. them follow Jesus and to, 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 to follow Jesus radically with joy in the midst of their pain and suffering. And then also, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I was going to say, I think that part of the attraction of the religious life for for priests is precisely to have those people with whom you can live joyfully. Uh, Yes. There's a sense, I think, we we look at religious orders and we say, you know, they might face the same challenges that we face in ministry and in priesthood and in preaching, whatever else it might be. But they have that ability to be together to pray together and to share life together, and there's something that's that's fundamentally attractive about that. But you're making that happen in your own diocese, oh, which is great, amazing. I, it's amazing. So when I first, after I met with the bishop, and then I saw that the doors were opening really wide, I freaked out. I was like, because then I remember, it's like, oh wait a minute, I was supposed to join a community. What the heck am I doing? Yeah. This is a diocese. What's happening? But to tell you the truth, uh, reading the life of St. John Mary Vianney, the career of ours, transformed mm-hmm. my perspective of the diocesan priesthood and to see the dignity uh, and the beauty and the radicality, if that's a word, of the diocesan or the secular priesthood. I love yeah. calling it what it is. And I just thought, oh my gosh, this is absolutely amazing. I love it. And yeah, so when I, <clears throat> when I was going to the cathedral, I asked Bishop, um, is it okay to for me to sort of form like a little informal community to have, you know, brothers and sisters to 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 walk with? Um, is there absolutely? So he gave me permission to do that. So I've got we are at least a dozen uh, uh, at at the rectory, <laughs> um, walk, uh, walking together uh, in the, uh, trying to to do this life. And the bishop is with us too, by the way. So that's pretty awesome. Yeah, that's powerful. That's powerful. So besides all of the upheaval and chaos and everything that's going on in society at large in in Haiti, as a priest ministering there now for these last 12 years, what do you find is the great pastoral need that challenges you as a priest? Oh, um, so one of the 
big pastoral means actually. It's gonna sound so not pious. <laughs> it's money. Okay. Money is a huge thing um, because everything you're doing is gonna cost money. Mm-hmm. I love, for example, those big outdoor missions, and I do them, and the people love them. We do processions, uh, and so that requires a sound system, that requires a truck, and that requires fuel, that requires organization of bringing things together, um, electricity, etc. And so, and that costs money. It's like, oh shoot, and because there's no income, and for it, anybody really in in the priesthood in Haiti, and also. Because my people, they're so poor, they themselves don't really, can't really support all this. Um, it's the opposite. The church has to, to support them uh, instead of them supporting the church. They do the very little that they can. But really, 90, probably at least 95 to 98%, I think, of all the expenses that happen come from donations of friends and people that trust me and they donate to Mission to the Beloved. So I can use that to do, to feed, you know, my people around me to, to buy candles for mass, to get, get incense of which we use a ton because we love the Holy smoke, uh, at the cathedral. We have adoration every day. Oh yeah. Uh, Um, and, uh, every Sunday at, uh, I was like, Hey, it's the cathedral. We got to model, you know, beautiful liturgies. Um, and because we too, we, we have several chapels, um, that we need to get to. And so we have the, the main cathedral and then four chapels and we have a school in each chapel. So transportation is a big thing. So we got to get fuel for the vehicle and the vehicles, they're always broken down. We, we got two that are broken down right now as we speak. And so, so, you know, it's got, it costs money and the roads are bad. And so, you know, driving on those roads, uh, you wear out your tires really fast. You wear out your vehicle really <laughs> fast. Yeah. And so, so that's a material need. Mm-hmm. Um, but then on the spiritual side, what I realized is that we need such a close and personal accompaniment of mm-hmm. people to discipleship. Um, on one level, to gather the people is one challenge that we face. And I think we've gotten pretty good at it at the cathedral because when I got there, there was one mass a Sunday and about 50 people. Now we have four masses for, uh, on a Sunday wow. um, and it's hundreds of people, right? So I can gather the people. But then I realized, I asked myself that question and I am embarrassed, I think, of the answer. Uh, well, I don't know the answer, but when I asked myself, I wonder how many people are really, you know, in difficult times, um, that the gospel has really taken root mm. to the point where they say, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ, fully evangelized, catechized. Um, you know, on the one hand, you know, I think I'm never satisfied. But at the same time, the Lord has kept his people. And I have to remember that it is the work of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we've been hearing about the story uh, this past Sunday with the story of Jonah. And, uh, and I, I couldn't help but realize that Jonah was boycotting the Lord's mission. <laughs> he was, and then when he finally went to do it, he did it in such a passive-aggressive way. I think it's the perfect example of <laughs> passive-aggressiveness. 
Uh-huh. It's like, okay, you want me to give them a message, tell them to repent so that you can save them. Okay, sure. Okay. What else? Okay. It takes three days to walk around. Okay. So first of all, I'm just going to walk around one day. What about the rest of them? I don't care. Secondly, um, I'm going to give them half of the message. I'm just going to tell them in 40 days they're going to get destroyed. I don't, I don't want them to repent because they did bad things to me. I want to do bad things to them. <clears throat> and he just did that. He left. And the people repented. And yeah. I was like, wait, what? First of all, the messenger was pretty awful. Secondly, the message was only half of the message. And yet God was able to work with that. So I'm realizing, wow, okay, as inadequate as I am, as inadequate we are as messengers, God can still work with his people uh, and to bring them to the place where he wants them. But I just really want to have fervent, committed missionary disciples who are themselves disciplers. That's the goal. That's the measure for me. Uh, and, and so that's a big challenge to make sure that the gospel really takes root because it's been years and years of preaching the gospel in Haiti. But I realized that uh, we, we got so much work to do so that people can actually be uh, convicted and convinced. So that's, uh, that's a, another one. And to help people realize the particularity of Jesus mm-hmm. um, and of abandoning themselves and their will to him. Because it's easy, right, with all the pain and suffering to be like, all right, Jesus, you could be my long-term dude. But when I have my short-term needs, sorry, dude, I got to step over there because there we could control the spirits more. And we could, you know, because that guy messed with me and I need him taken care of. I know you're not going to take care of him immediately. So I'm going to step out and go do what I need to do right. so I could get my justice quickly. Yeah. And, uh, and so, so that's kind of relationship as a syncretism that needs to, to be evangelized. And so that's a major thing. This desire for missionary disciples, for people who are really just living discipleship as Catholics who have embraced that faith and and who know this, I mean, I don't think that's a desire that should be limited to Haiti. I I think it's it's actually great. It's really comforting to me to hear you talking Mm. about this, that this is a need that you're seeing for for your people in Haiti, because it's the same need that I see in Fairfield, Connecticut. Uh, that this is this is the thing that actually binds us together, uh, wherever yes. our church might be. Um, you talk about the the material needs, and, and your material needs are, are very particular. I had twenty inches of water oh, in my yeah. basement, to, so I got to fix the furnace in the school building over here. You know, which is a pain in the neck. But yeah, honestly, like I I know how easy that is around here to fix. It's a different thing, yes. right? So my material needs as a pastor are different than your material needs as a pastor. And I think sometimes we might see that. And you look at the pictures, right? We go we go, uh, look at the, the websites for different mission organizations, and you always see all this joy. And you see these really vibrant celebrations when people are coming together to, to pray for Mass. You see this, this incredible piety, and it's really beautiful. And so we can be fooled into thinking that, hey, man, the only need is that material need. we got to make sure they have a truck that's going to get them from point A to point B. we got to make sure they've got the money that they need for, for food, for clothing, and all that stuff. But we can forget that sometimes the spiritual poverty that we see and our own people, mm-hmm. especially here in the United States, the like yeah. the buzzword right now, and I, I, I even hesitate to call it a buzzword. That's not fair because that makes it sound like it's not important. But we're talking about missionary yeah. discipleship left and right over here, and we're talking about yes. how important it is to really convict people of their faith in Christ. And if that's the reality that we need to convict people of of the faith in Christ, then to hear that it's also the need and the reality in Haiti, 
to hear that this is also yep. a need and a reality in other places that we would typically think of, no, they've got the faith, they just don't have the money. Mm. Man, that's comforting to me as a pastor in the United States. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad. <laughs> but also that, that there's this fundamental unity, right? What's the, yes. what's the purpose of the church? The purpose of the, of the church, we are together moving towards Christ. We are, are together striving to be disciples. And Absolutely. If I can have that common ground with somebody in another country in, a, in what we might in, in the United States consider mission territory, man, yes, that changes my whole way of thinking about that spiritual union. Amen, brother. Amen. Absolutely. Um, and so it requires that we pray for one another, that we, that, uh, we help motivate one another, encourage one another uh, for the sake of the kingdom, because we are yeah. one church. And we have one job to do is get those people onto the Lord. Um, yeah. So in, in forming missionary disciples, helping people to really embrace this sense of, of discipleship, you identify some of the syncretism that's there. Uh, I know that in Haiti, uh, voodoo is a very real practice. Is that one of the things that you're finding is a, a big thing that people gravitate to that becomes an obstacle to really embracing discipleship? Or is, is there something else? There, there's a couple things. That is uh, one thing. Voodoo is definitely a spirituality in Haiti, and uh, I think the the those who are members of who, or those who practice voodoo, if you will, uh, some of them do not like to call it a religion, um, uh, even though it's got several aspects of religion, right? Uh, but also they um, so that it is some of the tenets of voodoo are not compatible with Christianity, with Catholic faith. And so as such, but also at the same time, the people are human beings that we need to love. I think there's been sort of, there can be an extreme of, we, we could be so intolerant of the people themselves and we consider them less than people that because it's such an ugly thing in our minds. And so we just, uh, as if those people themselves were the devil themselves. And, uh, and there's a reaction actually uh, against that. Um, that is happening and that we, we should be careful of. But absolutely. So Jesus is particular. If we're going to follow Jesus, we have to follow him with all of our heart and our mind. We cannot serve two masters at once. And so that, that, I preached that gospel of the particularity of Jesus, how he's the only way uh, 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 that can save us. But yes, you will find a lot of people dabble in both. Hmm. Um, and uh, a lot of people are, they do not feel that they can give that up that they need to keep that especially and, and these days some people on the intellectual side are saying you know this is actually because this is going back to our roots because our ancestors uh had this spirituality whereas catholicism or protestantism or christianity as a whole was brought over by the colonizers and mm -hmm. therefore it's the white man's religion that we need to get rid of um, and go back to our own roots and you know, that has an emotional appeal to it. Hmm. It's an awful argument. It's a terrible argument. Uh, it's not. It's not based in truth. But as we both know, people they don't only function with the intellect. It's the whole experience right. of the person. Uh, and so I could st sit there all day and try to give good arguments. But people need to feel embraced, seen, appreciated, and rooted. And so that's a challenge for us, I think. That's going to be a good, uh, probably the, one of the biggest challenges for the church in the next couple of decades, if not more. It's how do we truly inculturate the gospel to embrace all the good things of the culture um, 
and help people feel truly rooted. Like people don't have to feel like they need to stop being Haitian in order to be Catholic, that they need to stop mm -hmm. being uh, of African descent in order to be Catholic. And at the same time, what does that mean? Does that mean we have to accept everything? No, there are things that must be embraced and celebrated, promoted in the culture. There are things that are neutral that can be baptized, if you will, to become uh, uh, to to be compatible with uh, our faith. And then there are things that need to be rejected, and that's every culture. It's not just Haitian culture. Just because you mm. say something is cultural doesn't mean it's absolutely untouchable. No, that's stupid. We know that there are. Uh, and I try to tell people, okay, <clears throat> have the Nazis won, uh, you know, uh, the war and created a whole race of people and therefore a whole culture of people? That would have been an awful culture. Um, you know, I'm sure right. there would have been good people in that culture, but that would have been a terrible culture um, that we we should not follow. It's just because it's yeah. cultural doesn't mean it's automatically and absolutely untouchable. So culture in it itself needs to be uh, purified, embraced and purified at the same time. So, uh, so yes, but anyway, syncretism is definitely a major problem in Haiti, not just for Catholics, but for Protestants too, the people that are in both. Mm. And then there are people, of course, who just wants to be on, on the other side and they do not want to, um, to, to, to come to the church because they feel that they've got, uh, they've got yeah. what they need. So yeah, that is something mm -hmm. we're dealing with. Okay. One of the things uh, we interviewed Sean Forrest for the tangent. Uh, so his episode's coming out. We're going to put it out after yours though, now that we've got you on and we've got this uh, kind of current events going in Haiti right now. Uh, but you sure. know, Sean and his yeah. mission with Haiti 180 is so strongly focused on education. Um, we're looking to talk also to the Haitian project and to some yes. of the work that they do in, in funding schools and everything. Where do you see education playing a role? I mean, yes. a lot of the stuff that you're talking about, you're, you're absolutely right that we're more than just the intellect. And so people respond not only to the intellectual yeah. aspect of, of their life, there's obviously mm -hmm. a lot more, but it, clearly education has to play a role, especially if we're going to make the case for, for the Catholic faith to people. So how do you, how do you find that working into the whole situation in Haiti? I think it's hugely necessary. And I think we have an advantage there because mm. almost the whole country knows <clears throat> the best education in Haiti is provided by the Catholic church. They know it and <clears throat> Protestants mm. know it. Voodoo practitioners know it. Catholics know it. They're like, you know, the, the, the gold standard of education is Catholic education. And so we have that opportunity, um, which is why I have also decided to throw myself into this project of education for, with Mission to the Beloved uh, at the cathedral to the point mm -hmm. where I am currently running and trying to build up seven different schools. And those schools are, uh, first wow. of all, there is the flagship school that is from seventh to senior year, seventh grade to senior year. And that school sort of has been, I didn't found that school. Uh, I, I found that school there, but when I became pastor, I wasn't, I'm not the founder, um, a former, uh, another, the former pastor is the founder of that school. And I'm so glad that he started it. Um, and it's a great school, one of the best in the area, very good education, very, very important uh, project going on there. But then I realized that, okay, we need to build up the kids from the bottom up. So we open, you know, primary schools uh, from kindergarten up to 
to be able to go up to the sixth grade so that that can then meet up with seventh graders, etc. And so we started a school uh, at the cathedral as well from kindergarten. And now we are in the fourth grade this year. Uh, so we went from K, we have three kindergarten years, K1, K2, K3, and then first grade. Uh, and we've already gone up to the fourth grade. Um, and so next year, or in September, we're going to go to the fifth grade, next year, sixth grade. And wow. then that'll be, we'll have a complete school from kindergarten to senior year. But I have wow. four chapels. Remember, I've got four other villages that I am responsible for. And we have okay. a chapel in each. Well, at least we're supposed to have a chapel in each. One of the villages, the chapel was destroyed in the earthquake. And mm-hmm. so we no longer have it. But but I started as classrooms inside the chapel. Um, and so, and the deal with the Lord was, hey, Lord, I'm going to go ahead and start those schools inside the chapel. And then you're going to send people with money to be able to build classrooms as the grades keep growing, because I can't have like, you know, eight classrooms in a small chapel. That's just not going to happen. Lord, three maybe, but beyond that, come on, we got to bring the money. And so, and I'm, I've started to build classrooms at two of those other schools. So, well, I should wow. say three because the one at the cathedral, in fact, we're, we're building up the classrooms. We're almost done. Thank God. And then we have Holy Family. So the cathedral is in him. Holy Family, uh, we've got an amazing group called Heart. Uh, they're out of based out of Michigan, and they're helping us uh, with not only the educational part, but also they were the ones who actually built that chapel uh, with me And uh, in terms of providing the money. They also sponsor a beautiful program called the Little Brothers and Sisters of Jesus, where we take in 50 kids every day after school uh, with a hot meal, catechesis, uh, tutoring, mentorship, uh, social human formation and uh, medical nutri- nutritional uh, uh, care. And so, mm-hmm. and that's every day uh, for six days a week. And so they helped to build uh, uh, four classrooms uh, at that uh, church and uh, uh, bathrooms. So I've got some of those classrooms built. We need more, but at least we've got those plus the chapel at Holy Family. Uh, St. Clair, um, we're still meeting inside the chapel. We don't have classrooms yet on the outside. Uh, St. Michael, we have two classrooms outside, uh, plus a chapel. And so the idea is, St. Michael is a sad story because um, we keep the cost, people have to pay. Uh, And so the the amount they pay, for example, is less than $100. It's like $50 for the whole year. Um, That's tuition. It's, uh, and it's, uh, you know, uh, so I guess more like $60, $70 for the year. But some people still find that difficult. Mm. And uh, and there's another school that came to compete uh, near St. Michael's, and they found a way to give school bags for free and free tuition. And so a lot of the kids that came to our school, they decided to pull out the next year and go to that school. I don't blame them. Free tuition, free book bags. Unfortunately, though, I don't think that school is going to last and yet, I too cannot enable, though, a community of, even, as much as I'm helping them and providing so much, but I, I, I want them to feel responsible. And therefore, you know, I'm not asking them for $1,000, but the $60, $70, they have to find a way to make the sacrifice to, to, to pay it. Um, mm. And if I find that people are not responding, I say, okay, 
you guys are not ready. I, I don't want to impose on you my vision of education for your community. Your community has to want this, and then we work together. So it's a sad thing. I might have to, you know, at least cut off uh, part some of the grades at that school. Um, hmm. uh, and then we've got... But um, either way, you're encouraging them to take ownership, to really get involved. You want uh, the community absolutely. to desire this. Yeah. Oh, 100%. 100%. And, and it sounds like they're responding Andrews. in some way. Like they're responding absolutely. to that. Yep. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Yes. Awesome. Yep. And I told them, this is what it is. And, uh, you know, uh, and this program uh, that, that we both took part of, the CPMAP program actually helped me with this as well. Because yeah. normally I would like, I mean, I'm just going to, you know what? Ah, uh, they just can't do it. I'm just going to do it for them. No, I'm able to say, you know, we, we, we both need to get into this. And if they're not doing it, it's okay. It's okay. I'm not threatened by that. It's okay. I can pause. I can even stop. And I, I'm not going to be annihilated. Now, St. Andrews is an interesting story. That's the one where the church was destroyed by the earthquake as well. Mm-hmm. And so, but we used some tin and two by fours to, to build like some structure outside. And so the school kept going under that temporary tin structure. Uh, and we've, we found an amazing group called Lumen Vitae that's sponsoring the kids. And, uh, and so they get a hot meal every day. And oh my God, what a difference that makes having a hot meal for those kids to be able to eat every day. It is a huge difference. So, those yeah. are my schools. And then there's one more school. We realized that we need good teachers, especially good Catholic teachers. We'd love to have, you know, well-formed Catholic teachers, but we don't, uh, we also have some really good non-Catholic teachers that come to help us. Um, but that's costly. And also we don't have enough in the area. We have to go get them from like another state or department. Mm. And so we started a school to train teachers. Um, so that's how I ended up with seven schools that we're running for the, for the parish of the cathedral. Wow. All right. So you've got the seven schools, mm-hmm. you've got all this going. Um, and now we're, we're at about an hour in, uh, tell me about mission to the oh. beloved, because that's kind of what I wanted to start with. And we, I just, I let us get sidetracked. So sure. yeah. what the heck is mission to the beloved? <laughs> when I was in Steubenville, I felt a love for the Haitian people, um, and for Haiti. And I realized that, um, we have to be careful and not see the Haitian people as a project, but rather, and also we shouldn't think that we are the first ones to bring love to Haiti and to the Haitian people. They are first loved by God. God loves them tremendously with an infinite, uh, eternal and unconditional love. So when we come as missionaries, we are joining God in his project of love for his people. So that's why the mission is commissioned to the beloved. They are already beloved of God. Um, and therefore to see their dignity as a people. Um, and so to approach them that way. So the mission of mission to the beloved is a, it's a nonprofit. It's a 501c3 based in Steubenville, Ohio. The mission of it is to proclaim the gospel and serve the poor. It's really mm-hmm. very simple. And, and it is, again, the pretty much almost the sole provider of all the means uh, to take care of the parish and all the ministries there and feeding the poor, prison ministry, getting food for people and running the church, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And again, um, and yeah, and so all the things I was talking about, 
all the things that I'm doing, it's all through missions to the beloved. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and so that's, that's the idea is that, um, people make tax deductible donations to, to the mission. And, and then I take it down. I don't, I don't take a cut out of it. Uh, hundred percent of donations go to helping the people. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, some of which are persecuted. Uh, there's a couple of them that are, that are persecuted and that have to, to be hidden. And so they are in protection. Uh, wow. Because of some abuse that had happened in the past, the mission okay. is supporting them. Um, I can't say too much more about them, but yeah, um, yeah, but yeah, that's that's what we do. Uh, you were talking about you know certain material problems that you have here and there. How easy it is to fix things here. It's been you know we don't have like we didn't have running water until this year, and I've been a pastor for eight years. Wow, uh, at the parish, and every week I've had to buy truckloads of water. Um, to bring it into the cathedral. And we finally got water. Finally. And so we wow. praise God for that. Secondly, That's amazing. we don't have 20... Yeah. We don't have 24-hour electricity. Uh, there is no uh, current during the day. And so and so we have to turn on a generator every night for a few hours. Um, and so we're trying to get a solar system. Yeah. Uh, but that's going to cost like, you know, between thirty to $50,000. Um, to get a good solar system. How many hours a day uh, do you have electricity? Um, that it would be, we turn on the generator around 6 to 11, so about five hours at night. Wow. And there's no electricity mm-hmm. available? No, we don't have a grid. We don't have a grid. There's no we're, grid. We're, wow. we're trying to, uh, no, at least not in my region. In port there is a grid, but they too suffer from lack of electricity. But anyway, um, we're trying now, I'm trying to work, I'm trying to empower the local leadership, like the mayor. And we did something where for a few days during the Christmas season, actually for like two weeks, for 16 days, I think it was, we were able to provide electricity for the whole town every day for six hours a day uh, from six to 11. And it was so good. And the idea was, to try to show people that we can do this because there, there is actually, in a sense, there is a generator for the whole town. There's our mm-hmm. generator for the church, but then there's a big generator for the whole town that could service the whole town, but they don't have money to get the fuel. Um, and so we were able to donate some money and get some other people to donate some money. To We were able to get fuel for all 16 days. Uh, actually, I think it went up to 20 days. And we were able to provide electricity for the whole town. Everybody was so happy. Um, and so it's a project we're trying to do and we're trying to, I'm trying, that was phase one. I'm trying to get to phase two where we raise enough money for the whole town and get them to contribute money. Every single house has to contribute mm-hmm. money. Once they've, we've collected that money, we'll be able, we, I need enough money for six months of current, you know, for six, five hours or six hours a day for them. Yeah. Um, and then to, to go ahead and get the fuel and get started to know that for, for the next six months, we're going to have electricity. So I'm going to raise money for that. And then phase three is another six months. Um, uh, and then phase four actually is we're hoping to get a solar farm for the whole town so that everyone can have electricity 24-7. Because why not? They deserve this. There shouldn't be some luxury to have electricity to charge their phones to uh, for the kids to study at night, uh, to do their homework, or to yeah. log on to you know to get some internet, uh, to be able to c- get connected to some documentary or etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, it should they should be able to have access to that. Yeah. So you mentioned charging their phones. 
uh, there's no electrical grid, but people have, they've got cell phones. Yep. Um, And so what people will do is a couple of different things. So there might be a couple of houses that have like a battery and a solar panel or something like that. Mm -hmm. And they'll use that to charge little things like a phone like that. And those who don't have that, they will go to someone who does and pay like, you know, uh, 50 cents to charge their phone for them. And then they'll take it and then, and they go back and use it. Wow. Wow. I mean, that by itself has to present a lot of, a lot of challenges. Uh, not, not necessarily knowing if people are going to have reliable phones because the battery's running out, not not knowing if they have a place where they can charge their phone. And then for you yourself, limited electricity every day, and then you've got to be able to charge a phone too to to do your ministry. Uh, That's got to present a whole whole slew of problems. I get get nervous when when my phone battery falls below 50%. I mean, I can't imagine like not knowing (laughs) if I've got an outlet to plug it into. (laughs) What the heck? (laughs) Yep. Well, another difficult one is trying to take a nap when it's 100 degrees outside and there's yeah. no electricity to turn on the fan. Yeah. <laughs> oh. I don't know if I'd survive <laughs> Haiti, Father Lewis. I don't know. <laughs> That's why we're trying you know, to make it better every day uh, because I think people deserve yeah. to be able to, to have certain basics uh, in life. For food, for example, uh, that's, that's the hardest one is to see people hungry. Yeah. And I see it every day. I see it every day. People who are hungry, people who need scholarship for their kids to go to school. So that's why, you know, I'm out there trying to get people to become monthly donors. Mm-hmm. Um, those are great, you know, $50 a month, $100 a month, $20 a month. Uh, and it, it can happen automatically on our website. People can use whatever, credit card, debit card, PayPal, all sorts of means on our website. But, um, one-time donors too. We've got some good donors that are one-time donors that hmm. will give like maybe, you know, we were able to build a couple of classrooms with like a one-time donation of $50,000. Like, all right, let's do it quick. Oh, homes. You know, oh, I have this tell video. It. If I showed it to you, you'd cry. Tell us about because, housing. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah, so many people are living in in no homes. There are people that are living in homes, but then there are others. There's this one guy, for example, his walls are curtains hmm. um, or tarps. Those are the, that's the wall of the house. And his bed is, you know, a thing on the floor. And, uh, and he's got a tin roof with holes in it. And many people are living like that. Hmm. And so I have a, I, I'm hoping. And, you know, to, to have a forever home, which is really part of getting out of misery, uh, will cost somewhere depending on how big uh, but for us for our standard to make sure that it's safe it's going to cost between 20 to 30 thousand um, dollars i would say 30 thousand uh, around there we had one that cost about 35 thousand hmm. but uh, we can make it a little smaller just so that we don't you know we, we don't but like and that's a forever home for somebody yeah. that is that will withstand earthquake you know hurricane and whatever and uh, but to see someone living like that, yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Repeat that number. Repeat that cost. Thirty thousand dollars. Well, let's say thirty-five to be to be generous. Uh, wow. For yeah, you get I mean, a forever home. Com- compared to housing here in in the U.S., <laughs> I mean that's such a that's such a small price tag in so many. Absolutely. Ways. I mean, maybe that's just because where I live, but anyway. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 
I mean, wow. No, that's everywhere in the U.S. That's <laughs> everywhere. And uh, but to think about it, I you know there are people who could probably donate a hundred homes like that. Um, right. And, uh, and and of course that would bring the price down because I could get things in bulk. Um, also, one thing I forgot to say is that I can't use my cathedral since 2021 of uh, the, oh. the the earthquake of August 2021. My cathedral is so damaged that it's unsafe, and so we're meeting under a makeshift tent, a metal tent, basically behind the rectory. That's where we meet, and and the reason we can't use the cathedral is because we need like fifteen thousand dollars to get a pathological study, they call it, where they come in, professionals come in, a lab, they x-ray the, the structure to see how deep the damages go, whether or not mm. it's salvageable, um, and then to move on. And then once they do that, so here's the thing, right before the earthquake happened, uh, a firm, an architectural firm, I was going to do renovations in the cathedral uh, to beautify it. Mm. And that was going to cost $750,000 the renovation and beautification. For example, I was going to add in a beautiful baptismal uh, pool uh, of a font, but where I could do full immersion. Mm. Um, and I was going to, you know, fix the windows, the doors, um, and different things like that, because this is an old building. But then the earthquake happened, and I didn't, th well, thank God we didn't start that project. Yeah. But now that the earthquake happened, we're going to have to rethink that because we have to do structural changes and uh. it's probably gonna be at least three million dollars uh to repair wow. that beautiful thing to the point where the okay. architect thinks you know what and but this is before the study like maybe it's easier and cheaper to actually knock it all down but i don't have the heart to do that that would everyone would cry um because it's yeah. such a monument for not just catholics it's the most beautiful building of the whole town it's right. it's a sign of hope and her bells, when they used to ring, it would ring in people's hearts everywhere, um, yeah. gather people. Uh, but and so, but anyway, the first step is to get the pathological study and then to be able to get the actual estimate for repair and then to do fundraising, capital campaign, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, so that's something we need a lot of prayers for because we need to get back into our cathedral. Yeah, absolutely. No, to have that place where you can gather your people to worship is, is key. Um, absolutely. Wow. Wow. And then I like, I like how you think of the, the building itself being a visible sign, a visible symbol. The bells yeah. ringing are that audible sign of hope, of God's presence, of something. So even yes. for those who don't believe, even those who aren't part of that community, there's, there's something there that says, this is ours. Oh, yeah. And isn't that the, the reason that our churches are beautiful, right? That you walk into a beautiful church, oh, and yeah. it doesn't yes. matter if you belong there, you ever gave a dime to the church, it's beautiful and it's there for you. Yes, I would Amen. imagine that in, in exactly. a place where where people are living in lots of poverty, they they might not experience that beauty. Um, yeah, they, right. they might they might see a lot of ugliness around them in the behavior yep. of people. You know, if you've got corruption and chaos sure. and violence, to have a place mm -hmm. they can go that's beautiful that says there's there is beauty in this world. It's that would be very hopeful. It's a beauty wow. that keeps that directly points them to the Lord. Uh, and therefore, to their dignity, to say that yeah. just because you're poor doesn't mean you don't deserve a beautiful cathedral. And uh, and I think that's hugely important. And that's why I don't want to pull any stops um, because I'm like, no, are they poor? Yeah. Is it Haiti? Yeah. The more reason why we need a beautiful place. Um, and uh, and the people, they, they see beauty in nature. 
certainly around them. They see beauty in different persons as well, in the smiles. And that's the other thing. Haitians love to smile. You smile at them and immediately they light up. Uh, and yeah. the kids, oh my gosh, they're just like, they melt my heart. My little <laughs> kindergartners, when I go visit them, they attack me. It's a cuteness attack. And they're like, uh, I mean, so the joy that's been, the innocence in life yeah. that is there. But, uh, but yeah, when they hear of the bad news left and right, people dying left and right, gangs taking over this and that, it's, uh, they need to find a place where they can literally look up and see, wow, God is here uh, and he has not abandoned us. Yeah. Yeah. To have that reminder of hope. That's powerful. Yes. Uh, so you alluded to this before that you and I are both students in the Catholic psych model of applied personalism certification. Uh, we've yes. both been, we've both been doing this training. So I see the application in my own context, running a parish in Connecticut. Yes. How are you seeing the application of, of these principles of integration, of accompaniment, of uh, good counsel, of just recognizing the different things that are happening to someone, the different the different aspects of their personhood. Um, how are you seeing it applying in your context there in Haiti? Well, one of the things I said earlier is being able to separate the actions of the people, the evil actions of the people, and the person, the, the persons themselves, mm. but also in the persons to know that they have these different parts of them that are dignified uh, and that are pushing them to act certain ways that are bad, but that are understandable because of... Mm they're seeking protection for that person. And so it's it's a, it's a very important to have that. Otherwise, you could get psychologically very um, jaded, if you will. Yeah. Also, absolutely. in my ministry, I, I find too that, you know, in the confessional, it's an amazing place to apply this, to see the person, to help the person themselves, mm. himself separate them, uh, uh, you know, that sin that they have, to, uh, to embrace themselves and embrace the different parts so that those parts can calm down uh, that are, you know, pushing them towards an addictive sin, for example, because that part feels that they need to protect that person. And I found it very helpful in conf the confessional. I found it hugely helpful in conflict resolution. Um, or, for example, because I have to manage, uh, I've had to fire a teacher, for example. And I think the teacher was very shocked that it went so well because she felt so understood. <laughs> mm. And this is like, what the heck's going on? Why am I not really angry right now? Because I was able to see the person and I was able to hear the person, sympathize and empathize with the person and bring back to them what I'm hearing and then be able to love them in the midst of saying, okay, but we still need to take these actions. And so I can separate you from what you did. You know, that's, that's an evil act. Yes, that was bad. But you, I love, um, mm. and then to be able to 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 do that. So I found it too, and of course in in community because I live in community, um, understanding people, helping them to understand each yeah. other. Because when you live in community, and that's another one, by the way, we think of the religious community like, oh, they must have, they must live in utopia. Now they're all at each other's throats too, everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> um, because Same problems beings. that we have, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> And so, uh, but trying though to understand yourself and therefore to understand the other, being patient with the other, understanding defense mechanisms and that when they come out, they evoke your own. And so you got defenses fighting instead of, yeah. but if one person lowers their defense and shows the real self, the other person might be able to look over and be like, oh, 
I see you. So I guess I could come down. And, uh, and the defenses can come down more easily. Um, and I've seen breakthroughs with people who've been dealing with certain personality traits for years and they've never understood why. And then when, when we do this work of looking internally in a way that is non-judgmental, they've been disarmed. And then they realize they're able to say, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. And yeah. apologizing to the others, I can't believe I've been like this to you guys for so long. And I didn't even notice it. But they were not allowed to notice it by another part of them that said, you know, you can't notice this because if you do, you might get hurt. And so you need to just keep putting that face out there. But yeah. now that they're able to look and see and have mercy on their own parts, that part was able to get unburdened. And so mm -hmm. they're able to, to move forward now and accept their weaknesses because it's okay that you're weak. It's okay. Uh, you're welcome. You're loved in your weakness. Um, yeah. So I've seen that kind of breakthrough in community in a powerful, powerful way. Yeah, to see people met with empathy. And when, when you yes. meet them with empathy and that understanding, while still being able to tell them the thing that they're doing or to, to be able to point yeah. out to them the whatever that problem might be, for them to then have the freedom because you've met them with that empathy mm -hmm. to repent, to apologize, to heal. It's such a gift. Well done. Amen. I like it. Yeah. Praise the Lord. Thank so you. with Mission to the Beloved, uh, mm -hmm. going back to Haiti, and then you find yourself uh, today coming to us from Florida. You're on the road a lot. You speak at different conferences. Uh, you're around the country here in the United States giving parish missions, and you've given a parish mission at my place. Uh, you're yeah. all over the place on the road, still taking okay. care of, of, of the cathedral parish, along with four chapels and uh, seven schools, all these, all this stuff happening. Man, you're Superman to me, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how you do it. I'll I'm tell amazed you. at it. Tell me how you do it. I've got a, I have a super god and a super team. Mm -hmm. um, and then when you have a super god, super team, uh, also a super bishop who really understands. Yeah. Uh, and I've got, and by super team, I also mean my super friends that, you know, that know that believe in the work that's being done and they bring their support in prayer and in emotional support um, and financial support. Uh, and then my team in Haiti on the ground, I can rely on them. I know I've got somebody who, who's running logistics. He's really good at what he does. I've got somebody running finance. Uh, I can be detached from the money part. Uh, yeah. I have to bring it in, um, but I, I know that, okay, you know what, somebody's <laughs> going to Yeah, Plus you got to bring that money guys. in, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I've got my brother priest that I rely on. I've got four brother priests at the cathedral that are vicars, um, and I trust them, and I show them that I trust them. When I get the responsibility, I let them do it, um, and they appreciate that. They see my trust, and so, yeah, and my the, the lay people that are there doing their, their, their work. So I really do have a super God, super bishop, super team, super friends uh, yeah. uh, that that's helping. And of course, my family, they're hugely supportive. That's awesome, man. Well done, though. Man, I, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I sit back and I'm like, I feel like I have every advantage. I have all these great things, you know, as a, as a pastor and as, and as a priest. And this, to me, is one of the, the great gifts of meeting priests coming from other countries and just even... Mm -hmm even different circumstances right here in the diocese. 
Are you kidding? I can yes. I can drive three miles away and go and visit a parish that is in radically different circumstances. And I realize mm. what an enormous crybaby I am. You know, <laughs> like <laughs> I have it so easy. It's such a gift. Oh the, man, the generosity of people. But I realized then too that like all of us priests, we've been blessed by that generosity. You know, you talk about the community that you, that you're in and the fact that priests in Haiti make no money, but you're blessed by the generosity of people who take care of you. You know, I'm blessed yes. by the generosity of people who take care of me and who want to make sure that that things are are well done here in the parish and who care. And what a beautiful gift for us to be able to partner with them, to work with them. It's incredible. Amen. I don't deserve Absolutely. it. Absolutely. <laughs> Same here, brother. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I'm glad, I'm glad it's the same for you too. <laughs> Yep. Well, listen, you've been super generous with your time, my friend, and uh, I'm so grateful for it. Um, coming back to where we where we began, um, yes. right now, right now, Haiti is clearly in a, a, another moment of need. It seems like this this is consistent, and I think that the world's attention gets turned away to other things. There's lots of other conflicts yeah. in the world that, that people focus on, and it might be easy to forget this, but this is maybe the one closest to home. This is the place of, of great yeah. distress outside of the United States that's closest to our borders, mm-hmm. um, or one of the places. I shouldn't, I shouldn't use too sure. broad a statement there, but this is a very real place where, where there's very, very real need. Um, and... I'm so moved by your, your bishop's offer to take the yeah. place of people who have been kidnapped. That's true. It's a powerful thing to realize that there's heroic sacrifice uh, being made and that there's there are people who are willing to really, truly put themselves on the line. Um, if you had to ask for any prayer from our listeners, from people here who are going to hear about this, uh, what would you ask us to pray for? for you, for the people in Haiti, uh, for your mission? Okay. Uh, so first of all, for Haiti, for the total deliverance of Haiti mm-hmm. from evil, from violence, and there, and also a the prosperity of Haiti, spiritual, material, social. So deliverance and prosperity of Haiti uh, in the Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, and for the, for the church, uh, to be strengthened in her gospel mandate to preach the gospel and serve the poor in a radical way so that she can keep regaining her credibility amongst the people, amongst the poorest of the poor. For my parish to pray for the reconstruction of my cathedral uh, and for the sanctification of my people, uh, especially myself, uh, to be holy and to come to get closer to the Lord. Hmm. And finally, to, uh, to get our material needs needs met for the schools, for food, for electricity, etc. I know that's a lot of prayers, but we have a lot of needs. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, we we got a lot of people who can pray, so that's that's fantastic. Amen. Yeah, no, these are beautiful. These these are beautiful prayer intentions, okay. man. Um yeah, so good. Oh man, I, I'm just I'm so excited to to see the work that you're doing. It's powerful. Thank it's you, beautiful. Um, yeah. So if you want to support Father Lewis, go to missiontothebeloved.com. 
You can yes, find sir. out more about his, uh, about his work. You can partner with him uh, by becoming a donor. What else? You got another website or is that the only one? No, that's, that's the only one. Missionsdevelopment.com. I guess um, people could look me up on Facebook as well. I'm on Facebook. Okay. Um, yep. Sweet. Awesome. Well, brother, thank you so much. It's great to have you on. Thank you, brother. Thank you so much for hearing our story and giving voice to the voiceless of Haiti. Amen. God bless you. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to further support The Tangent, please consider subscribing or following on your preferred platform, following us at the Tangent underscore Catholic on Instagram, or even donating at VeritasCatholic.com. See you next time. God bless.